All right, if you've got a Bible near you, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and look what's back. Physical message note sheets. Who's been waiting for them? I know you have been because you've been pinging me about it, so they're back. So here you go. Ushers are going to make their way down the aisle. So those of you who are veterans, you know that this used to be something you received every week when you came in the door. So starting this week and for the weeks continuing, we'll place them on the tables there by the hand sanitizer stations on your way in. If you need a, if you need a note sheet, just raise your hand. The ushers will come down the aisle and make sure you got one. Uh, those of you joining us online, great to have you joining us. You can go to eaglechurch.com Sunday and you can get this electronically, all right? And uh, thanks to our online host and everybody else. Just keep your hands up. The ushers will get to you. And thanks, ushering crew. So this is a good way for you to stay in step with where we're at in this storyline of the with God life. So my Bible says we're on page 236, and we've officially hit the halfway point. Those of you who are reading through the Bible with us this year, we hit the halfway point. Did you see that? This week. So we're six months in. Way to go. I, and if for some reason you've fallen off the reading through the Bible wagon, guilt-free, get back on, all right? Just jump on this week, join us. You can, on eaglechurch.com Sunday, there's a way you can sign up for the reading plan, and it's on the YouVersion app, and we're just going through the Bible together, and we're just teaching through it together on Sundays. And last week, didn't Julia Davis do a great job on the life of Samuel last week? Way to go, Julia. She talked about Samuel being a hinge in the history of the story. If you missed last week's message, let me encourage you to make sure and get some time and go back and listen to it because it's critical for where we are in the storyline. So it was several years ago now that I think it was a Saturday afternoon and my two girls at that time were quite young and they came to me with the look that a dad sees his daughters have on their face. And they had like a, I think Lily had a piece of paper in her hand, and they sat down beside me, and it wasn't just a daughter sitting beside dads, it's daughters sitting beside dad who wants something. <laughs> Come on, dads, you know, like, have you ever been there? And daughters, you know, or kids, you know what I mean. So anyway, they had, they had this idea, they said, dad, hear us out, but we want to have a trampoline. Okay. And they had done their research. They had come up with a, you know, cost analysis kind of thing. They had gone through the safety features, the dimensions, you know, the whole deal. They had the whole thing laid out like for the Simpson family trampoline in the backyard. So, I mean, what? I mean, what am I going to say to that, right? So thanks to Amazon, like three or four days later, it arrived, you know? And it came in two boxes. Who's been there, right? So two boxes and an instruction manual that wasn't quite like a phone book. It was kind of a junior version of a phone book kind of thing, you know? And so I think it was one Sabbath day, I drafted Kendra into this grand plan. I said, honey, I got a great idea for our Sabbath day. We're going to put the trampoline together. Honey, do you remember this? Yeah, she remembers it. So we, we were in the backyard, and we laid out all the parts, and the assembly was going so well, and we got to the point where we put all 96 springs. Why do I remember that? 96 springs, we know. Put all those together and 50 plus hand tied the loops that were around the padding. You know, if you've done this, you know what I'm talking about. You have to hand tie these things. And, and we get to the point where it said in the instruction manual, at this point it said, insert the safety net poles into the base around the frame. 
Huh. So we did. I took the poles and I put the poles in. Now here's the visual you need to have. So the frame went together so easily. I mean, it just snapped together. I mean, it was great. And we put the safety net poles around. And Kendra says to me, she says, honey, where are the poles for this side of the trampoline? You need to picture it like a half moon. So the, the, the trampoline had a half moon of poles. Just I wish I'd have snapped a picture. I'd have showed it to you. But you just need to picture a circle and only half of it had poles sticking up. And she said, where are the rest of the poles? I said, honey, I don't think that's the issue. I stared at it some more, looked at the one, just one small little sentence in the man. I mean, just, how did I miss it, right? I said, well, I said, honey, the way we put the frame together, like, that was supposed to be dispersed evenly around the circle, where they had welded the bracket so the pole could go in, all five of them were together on half the side. All five brackets. Like, what are the chances of that? So she gave me the, who got me into this look? And I had the, I need to go to the prayer room before I respond, kind of. I stared at it some more and thought about, I said, she said, well, what are options here? I said, honey, we got to tear the whole thing down. <laughs> Dad, you've been there? <laughs> She's like, the whole thing? I said, all 50 plus ties, all 96 springs, the whole thing. Because the problem is with the frame. Well, we're at this place in the journey through the Old Testament we're going to do some frame analysis on some different characters. The first one is a guy named Saul who becomes the first king. As Julia laid out, right, there's this transition in the, with the people of Israel that they're going to, they've, they're clamoring for a king, not like what God would want them to have a king, like he's supposed to be their king and the king would submit to the Lord's authority, but it's a king like all the other nations' kings, as Julia was talking about last week. And they're clamoring, and there's this guy named Saul who... Um, I want to talk this morning about, have you ever started out on a project? Have you ever started out on a, a marriage, a family, a career, a ministry, where you just kind of had it in your head, you envisioned it to go a certain way, and you got into the project, and it doesn't look like anything you envisioned. You have that moment where you look in the mirror and you say, how did we get here? Well, this is King Saul, and uh, in 1 Samuel 13, we pick up the storyline. Here's the introduction of Saul to the story. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. So in your notes, I put a little summary. Here's Saul's starting point, okay? Saul's beginning. So in his 20s and 30s, here's what the Bible says about this young man. In 1 Samuel 9 and 10, it's kind of a summary, and I put those verses on there. He was physically dominant. So he's a strong, they said he was just really like physically impressive. He seemed humble, he encountered God, he shunned the limelight, and he had good self-control. Now, on the surface, that's pretty strong, right? I mean, if you're looking for a, a leader to start leading the nation under God's leadership, Saul seemed like a good candidate. So this is the first 
king of Israel drafted in. So fast forward four decades, so 40 years later in his 60s and 70s, here's Saul. In 1 Samuel 18, his jealousy is out of control. In 1 Samuel 19, his anger is out of control. He tries to kill David. In 1 Samuel 20, his insecurity is out of control. He tries to kill Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 28, he seeks spiritual guidance from a witch. In 1 Samuel 31, he commits suicide. When his armor bearer won't run the sword through him, he takes the sword and runs it through himself. And he's one of the four suicides in the Bible. So the question is, how, how did you go from that starting spot to that ending point? I don't think Saul ran the tape out and said in his 20s, 30s, even in his 40s, said, here's how I want to go out in my 60s and 70s. I would argue it was a problem with the frame. When Coach Dungy was our head coach here in Indy, this time of year, he would, uh, usually around June or so, he would get the players together, and he'd have a kind of a players and staff meeting where he would lay out the top five ways to get your name in the USA Today for non-sports-related items. He had this conversation, like, every year he was our head coach. Top five ways to get your name in the USA Today. And he would have slides from the previous off-season that would kind of amplify the point. So his top five ways, uh, number one was out past midnight. And he'd say, Guys, nothing good happens after midnight, just shut it down. Boy, imagine what would happen in our world if we actually just, like, just not a lot happens. Great. Young folks who are listening, just not. Ask some of us who've lived a little more life, do we look at anything that's happened after midnight? Yeah, there's a, a lot of stupidity tends to happen after midnight. So Tony would say, guys, just, and he'd say, secondly, Driving over 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. <laughs> Thirdly, weapons. Fourth, drugs and alcohol. Fifth, people you don't know well or know too well. And then he'd put a slide up. And he would say, and it would be an athlete that they all knew. It wasn't somebody in the room, but it'd be another team member, another team in the NFL. I'd have an athlete. So and so was arrested at 2:30 a.m. driving 85 miles an hour in a construction zone, who had an unauthorized weapon under his seat, marijuana in his car, and a whole gaggle of people. Headline in the USA Today. And he just go right. I mean, he had like six, seven, eight of them. And he'd say this, he said, men, can we just make a commitment right now? Nobody's in the USA today. For the next, right, the season's like three months from starting. We hit the headlines during the season for our play on the field. We don't deal with the... But as coach would say, he said, do you think any of these guys sat down like that day and said, here's how I want today to go. At 2.30 this morning, I'm going to get pulled over, and here's the scenario, and then tomorrow, here's the headline. They didn't, it was what he called, guys, they didn't really think it through. It was a death by inches. It was just one subtle oversight linked to another subtle oversight. It was me 
with the trampoline manual, and it was just one sentence. They didn't even put it in bold. They could have said, make sure the frame, right, brackets are evenly spaced. It just had one sentence. Clip the poles into the bracket. And I just overlooked it. It became an issue with the frame. And for King Saul, somewhere in his 20s, 30s, and 40s, he just, it was a death by inches. It wasn't like one big decision. It was just, as we're going to see this morning, we're just going to look at three, what I'm going to call just subtle compromises or maybe a little more bold-faced compromises that get linked up together that have his exit be, unfortunately, what I just outlined it being. And as we go through these, perhaps a little mirror in our own little frame analysis in where we are in our journey. So here, here's the first one, verse 7, chapter 13. He's, got, he's thrust into some circumstances I'm calling when you're thrust into circumstances that are unraveling. Saul remained at Gilgal. That's about 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Now all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Why? The Philistines are approaching. Philistines, arch enemy, they're always creating problems for the Israelites. So the Philistines are creating trouble. His troops are quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So you can write in your margin of your Bible, chapter 10, verse 8, right? Chapter 10, verse 8, that's where Samuel gave Saul the instruction, hey Saul, stay at Gilgal. It's not your role to offer the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a priest role. That's not a king role. So Samuel's trying to coach young Saul up to say, hey, Keep your role straight. Don't cross over and start handling priestly duties. Wait till I get there. He tells him to wait. I will come. But he's not coming in the time frame. So he said, bring me, Saul says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. If he'd have just waited a little bit longer, right? Boy, how many of us have been there? What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering, underline that in your Bibles, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, which is about 10 miles west of Gilgal, which is where Saul is. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled, underline that, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Verse 13, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. So here's kind of the first move on the death by inches for Saul, is when the circumstances are unraveling, there's just this reacting in desperation. Do you see this? There's this circumstance unraveling like, the Philistines are approaching, the troops are scattering, and Samuel is missing. That's the circumstances. Philistines approaching, they're just 10 miles away. They don't have, the, the agenda is to wipe them out. So like the Philistines are coming not to like welcome the Israelites, they're coming to attack the Israelites. Philistines are coming, troops are scattering, and Samuel is missing. And Saul decides he's going to take things into his own hands. He's going to get this thing going. He just reacts out of desperation. He just decides, you know, I'm just going to handle this the way I think it needs to be handled. And, and it isn't ironic that he's like 
disregarding a command of the Lord, follow this, he knows what Samuel said, wait, don't do it yourself, he's disregarding a command of the Lord to seek blessing and guidance from the Lord. Yeah, how many of us have been there? How many, how many times I've been there? I don't think this is just a Saul thing. I think this is a human thing. I think we're pretty good when the circumstances are pressed, when the Philistines are approaching, when the troops are scattering, when Samuel's missing, we're pretty good at rationalizing moving the lines. And just like in his own head, he's like, well, I need the Lord's blessing. Bring me the offering. Even though he knows in his heart of hearts, he should wait. And ultimately, what God's probably trying to develop here in Saul, trust in the Lord, obey the prophet's command there, like cultivate that. It's just a little subtle movement here. On the surface, like, wait, what do you do? You just bring me the offering, get, get God's guidance. And it's getting linked up to something. I think it's a problem with a frame. And it's going to cost him dearly. So let's go to chapter 14. Let's see what happens here. Philistines are coming again. It's another battle scene. And this time, they're kind of they're fleeing in all directions. The, the Philistines are like surrounding them in such a way. So Saul asks, Ahijah is the priest he's reaching out to, get the ark of God. Now, the ark of God in the storyline of the Old Testament, ark of God represents the presence of God to the people of God. And so we'll get into this more as we get into David's life. But ark of God, presence of God, people of God. So he said, get get the ark. So verse chapter 14, verse 18, here's what we see happens. Saul says to Ahijah, this is the priest, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Uh-oh. So the good thing is here, he's at least interacting with the priest, but now notice the king is kind of bossing the priest around. So he's, you see what was kind of subtly eroding back in 13 is getting linked up to this issue in 14. It says, withdraw your hand, Ahijah. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. So I put this one. I think there's this movement like, He's not getting God's guidance in the time frame that he wants it, so he just goes into what I'm calling self-reliance. So when God's guidance isn't coming as quickly as you want, this death by inches, he just goes self-reliant. He, I mean, it's a good thing that he wants to like get God's guidance. That's a good thing. We'll give him some credit for that. But how he's going about it, like, have you noticed with God, like, he doesn't always operate on our timetable. Well, I was playing pastor obvious, right? Like, he, he doesn't, like... Sometimes when you're asking God for, hey, God, what do I do here? Hey, I'm ready to get this moving here. God doesn't always respond in the time and the way we expect or want him to. And so, again, God's probably looking from Saul for a little humility, a little trust, and wait, and let Ahijah guide, and God will come through when he wants to come through. But Saul just decides in the mind, of, like Saul says, I know what to do. I'm going to take things into my own hands, and I'm going to handle it self-reliance. And in my life, here's like the dashboard of self-reliance for me. Prayerlessness is an indicator of self-reliance. I think what we're praying about is a window into what we're trusting God for, which is why I say in my life, the things that I'm really not praying about are the things I'm not ultimately trusting God for as much as I think the Lord wants me to, which is why the Bible says we ought to be praying about everything. We ought to have this posture of prayer and dependence on the Lord about everything, because really we're dependent on Him for everything. Everything. 
unlike Saul who says, well, I know what to do, and I know when it needs to be done. I'm going to take it into my own hands, and I'm going to birth it in my own strength and self-reliance. And can you see how this reacting and desperation in chapter 13 gets linked up to this posture of self-reliance in 14? Can you see the erosion with the frame? Can you see it? And that's what's going on. And it's not done yet. We're going to look at, look at one more in chapter 15. Saul, Samuel tells Saul that the Lord wants all the Amalekites wiped out. Now, if you can write May 23rd, if you can put a little note, May 23rd, I spent some time in the message then, like, what do we do with these sections in the Old Testament when God says, wipe all these people out? So May 23rd, I tried to take some time and give a little framework for what's helped me through the years, like, how, how do I process that? I think it's one of the hardest things about the Old Testament storyline. There's no easy answer, but I think there's some at least thoughtful uh, things that we can put that trust the character of God in it and how do we navigate it. So this is one of those where Samuel says, hey, Saul, wipe out all the Amalekites, like every single one of them, all their possessions, all their animals. And then chapter 15. So the, the instruction's clear. The execution is where the breakdown. Saul then, verse 7, chapter 15. Saul attacks the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. So that area is kind of like east of the Red Sea, modern-day Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed." Hmm. So what's the, what's, the, what's the tension there? What's the issue? What was the original command? Wipe them all out. Would Agag be a part of all? All the animals. But they looked so good and they were so, right? He just thought, they're, they're, he just, selective obedience. This is a window, right? He's just selectively obeying. It's not that he's not obeying. It's just selective. He's picking and choosing how he's going to handle it. In verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. So Saul has gone from the posture. The role of the king of that land was to serve the people, was like an I serve you posture. And now Saul's gone into this I serve me posture. Well, it's a good thing we don't struggle with that in our world today when it comes to just imagine if we might have some leadership issues going on in our world where those who are supposed to be in an I serve you are in an I serve me. This is Saul. Can you imagine in Samuel's heart what this had to do for him? I mean, I just picture, I don't think Samuel slept great that. I mean, just Saul's where? He's setting up a monument to who? To himself? Can you picture that? How his heart had to be broken. And, and maybe for some of you today, you're kind of like a personal Samuel alongside maybe a, a modern-day Saul figure in your life where you're walking alongside someone and you're trying to help keeping them point to the Lord and see the character of God and have humility. And, and you got word recently that they're off building a monument to themselves again. Like, that's that space in the story where Samuel is, and just encourages this morning, hang in there like Samuel does here. Like, don't, 
don't give up, but he, he has to confront. And basically, Saul's life has become bounded on all four sides by Saul. That's never a good place when we get to that space. Verse 13, Samuel reached, <laughs> reached Saul. The Lord bless you. So Samuel gets to Saul and Saul says to him, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Wow. How about that? So Saul has this ability to edit history. We're pretty good at this as humans, aren't we? We can kind of recreate a scenario in our head for how we saw the situation unfold, even though the original command and how we executed what the Lord wanted to, and then the conclusion is he sees Samuel. I've done what the Lord wants me to do. Can you see the smile on his face? And can you just feel what has to be burning inside of Samuel at this point, right? Knowing what really has happened. Verse 14, Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? For all you non-agriculture folks, right? It's this, right? What's all the sounds of the animals rustling around in the background because the original command was where were the animals to be all dead shouldn't be a sound of bleeding sheep or lowing cattle anywhere samuel's like saul you're fine with all the cattle and sheep back here and god said wipe them all out saul do you see the the you see the issue with the frame do you see samuel's like it's a frame issue saul like You've actually edited history to take selective obedience and make it total obedience. Oh boy, when we get to that point, mm. and that's a good window into where the storyline for the Israelite people is going in this next chapter. Saul answers, look how Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. <laughs> they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, uh-oh, what stands out here? The Lord, your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Wow, there is so much here, church, right? Do you see the issue with the frame? Anybody been in the place where it goes from our to your if you've been parenting for any length of time, you've had this conversation at some point, right? They're our kids when it's a great parent-teacher conference. They're your kids. Come on now. <laughs> it's our, right? It's our church until some things get a little, so oh, your it's our God. Samuel's like, wait, didn't we start this out? Like, this is Yahweh, our God we're serving. And Saul, see the problem with the frame? From reacting in desperation in 13 to self-reliance in 14, chapter 15, it's getting, it's the moment where you're standing and going, all the poles are on one side. Feel again what Sam, I mean, Inside of Samuel, that's where my compassion goes. Oh. Jump down to verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. So Samuel confronts him, says, what are you doing? You're rationalizing a bunch of disobedience. Saul's response, but I did obey the Lord. And notice the way he 
he rationalizes obedience as he throws all of his soldiers under the bus. Where did that start in Genesis 3, right? Blame shifting. We got a PhD in editing history to rationalize our selective obedience, to make it total obedience. You know how we do that? We can blame shift the places where we know we didn't follow through. We really weren't responsible for that. The soldiers did all that. Yeah, right, Saul? Like the soldiers did anything without your awareness or approval in that space. Come on. That's what Samuel calls him out on. Stop blame shifting, Saul. But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Wait a minute. Right there. Right? What's ironic there? I completely destroyed, you see in the sentence? And brought back Agag. Whoa, right there. Do you see it? Like, it's a problem with the frame. He actually is in his, he's, as he's speaking, it's becoming clear on where the gap is. And I think if we live enough life, we're going to battle the same space because it's an issue with the frame. The soldiers again, throwing them under the bus, took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to the Lord, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. Hmm. The clearest picture of the breakdown of the frame is just one consonant from our to your. Saul's distancing himself from Yahweh. He's going to join the other kings of the lands around him. Hmm. And he was supposed to be a distinguishing leader. He was supposed to help set apart the Israelites, with Yahweh's presence in power and character. Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. That's Bible speak for saying you don't have a clue about obedience right now. God wants obedience wholehearted from you, Saul, and you're rationalizing partial obedience, throwing your soldiers under the bus, and then thinking it's total obedience. Do you see the breakdown? He's confronting him with that. And you think maybe then it begins to penetrate. Now listen, Saul's eventually going to have like a little confession here. He says, Saul says to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned. Oh, this is a good sign, right? I have sinned, but careful. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So from chapter 13, when the Philistines are approaching and the troops are scattering and Samuel's missing, he reacts in desperation to chapter 14 when he tells Ahijah, the priest, withdraw your hand. I know what to do. I got this. It's a self-reliance. So he goes from desperation to self-reliance to now chapter 15. What I'm saying, when you can't see what others plainly see, I'm calling it rationalized foolishness. The Bible word for what we see in Saul's frame of his life, what's eroding and breaking, the Bible word for it is called foolish, a lack of wisdom. You should know better. When you convince yourself that 
disobedience is actually obedience. When completely destroyed equals keeping the best of the livestock. When completely destroyed equals introducing Samuel to Agag. When confession is grounded in, I was afraid of the people and I gave in to them. A pastor friend once told me years ago, he said, Eric, he learned through the years that people mainly confess the sin to him that they believe he already knows. Think about this. I've thought a lot about this over 27 plus years of doing this. I go, I think I've lived this out a lot. That people will confess the sin to you that they believe you already know. The difference is this. There's a distinguishing mark between brokenness before a holy God and sorrow that you got caught. I'm going to say that again. In trying to help people through the years, it doesn't take long in the conversation for me to see if there's brokenness before God over what's been done, or is it sorrow that I got caught? It reminded me of the young man who came to my office once who I think he was assigned to come talk to Pastor Eric by others, and he started the meeting by placing five cell phones on my desk. And then he said, Pastor Eric, this is Sheila, this is Sarah, this is Rachel, this is... I said, young man, I've got no idea the backstory on this, but I said, anybody your age with five cell phones is going nowhere good. But the conversation turned to, he wasn't broken before God over the life that he's living with all these young ladies. And he said to me, he goes, you know, it's really hard to do. And I'm like, I imagine it is. He said, I get nervous that when the phone rings or a text goes off, I'm going to respond with the wrong. I imagine you do. What do you think? He says, what do you think I should do? I go, as pastor, I mean, you don't have to go to school for a counseling discussion like that. But he was just sorry that he got caught. So he had his tail between his legs to the pastor's office to placate the person or persons who asked him to come. And there was no brokenness before God. That's this. The issue was with the frame. And so, church, I don't, I don't think this is just a Saul thing. I don't think this is just an Old Testament for Samuel 13 to 15 thing. I happen to agree with John Calvin's summary here. Here's what Calvin said. I put this quote in your notes because I thought it would be important maybe to reflect on this week. For as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, so the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom than to follow the Lord wherever He leads. Let this then, hear this, be the first step, to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. That's how you deal with the frame. And so I don't know, this morning, those of you here, those of you joining, those of you listening to this message later, 
Maybe you're in the situation in your life where the Philistines are approaching, the troops are scattering, and the people that you feel like you need right around, they're missing. And you have this thing inside, you just want to react out of desperation. Or maybe it's you've been calling out to God, He's not responding in a time and a manner that you want Him to, and you say, withdraw your hand, Aija, I know how to do this. I've got this. I know what to do. The irony through this whole narrative of Saul's life, of all the things we see him doing, here's the one thing we don't see him doing at all. He doesn't call out to the Lord. Nowhere. Isn't that ironic? Not one time. Like, God, God, like not once, help. Like, just, just God, that he's just, his life's become all bounded by himself. Maybe you get to the point where, like in chapter 15, where you've got caught up in a cycle. Maybe you've had some people who love you, who care about who you know they're in your corner. Maybe you've got some Samuels in your life coming to you and saying, you're on a path of foolishness. You're on the wrong road, going the wrong way. Do you know what's even increasingly foolish? To ignore that wise counsel. When you're on the wrong road, going the wrong way, wisdom is pause, step back, seek God, redirect, heed the counsel. That's called wisdom. Perseverance only makes sense when you're heading in the right direction. It only makes sense when you're going the right way. If you're on the wrong road, going the wrong way, it's foolish to persevere. If you're on the wrong road going the wrong way, like Saul, if there's an issue with the frame, what response is God looking for? He's looking for brokenness before God, for humility, for repentance. Do some work on the frame. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. Receive the counsel of those around you. Turn from the path of foolishness to wisdom. You don't have to exit like Saul. But... I think a sobering reminder of the story is if you just keep going the way you've been going, and these are some of those characters, this is where it ends. Run the tape out. Those of you who are younger in your years, run the tape out. Where's this go? Run it out. And then look around and see, maybe God sent some people. Perhaps you are a Samuel, or perhaps you're on the receiving end of some wisdom of a Samuel. Heed that count. Don't ignore it. Don't just push it away. So, the trampoline. We tore it all down. Removed all 96 springs. Untied all 50 of the ties. Broke the whole frame down. Reset it all there in the yard. Put it back together. And when we put the poles in their brackets, <laughs> it was the way it was supposed to be. It didn't have to be nearly as complicated, but I just missed <laughs> that one sentence. Just a little death by inches. One thing linked up to another thing, and you look back and go, how did I get here? And if that's you this morning, 
Doesn't have to be a trampoline. It could be the project. could be your marriage. could be your family. could be your career. could be your ministry. could be your life. And you go, how did I get here? Today is, you know, God's given you the grace of today. You can pause, step back, stop, examine. Perhaps there needs to be some frame adjustments going on. And then the rest of the story could look different. Let's pray together. Father, I want to lift up those who are hearing this message today and maybe feeling a stirring by the Spirit of maybe there have been some conversations going on in their life. Maybe they've had some parents, some friends, some family members, uh, some small group leaders speaking to them about, you know, Saul-like stuff, some rationalized obedience stuff, some foolishness stuff. And, and maybe today it's becoming clearer that there needs to be a posture of humility and receptivity and openness to wisdom and counsel. And I pray for a change of heart. I pray for a teachable spirit. And ultimately, I pray for a mighty outpouring of your spirit in a way that is breaking, break our hearts for what breaks yours. They've broken before God for the places where we're just, we can't see it, but we're so far out of line and Help us, O oh God, have mercy on us, and mercy on us for our self-reliance, mercy on us for our rationalizations, for our blame-shifting, for our hard-headedness and hard-heartedness. Have mercy, O oh God. And thank you for your grace that given this day, today can be a turning point. And maybe there's somebody today who's hearing this, and you just want it to be a turning point. All you have to do is say, oh God, forgive me. You can do what Saul never did, and that's just call out to the Lord and say, Jesus, help me, forgive me, open my eyes, cleanse me from my sin, give me the wisdom and grace to go a new way. It could be today, it could be a turning point. You just call out to the Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you keep coming after us. Thank you that you keep pursuing us. Thank you that there's nothing that we're going to, like that song we sang earlier, there's, there's nothing that our God can't do. There's no mountain so big that he can't move. And so infuse us with your faith, your hope, your love, and your grace today, we pray in Jesus' name.